0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales,
0: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. Just over a year ago, I was on board the Celebrity Edge with Captain Kate McHugh. Not only the first American woman to command a major cruise ship, but the captain who made history with the only ship with all women officers on the bridge. Here's an understatement. A lot has happened in the last 12 months in the cruise industry. And I caught up with Captain Kate McHugh on Marine Satellite Phone for a Frontline Update as she was sailing from the Bahamas back to Florida with her skeleton crew and no passengers. Then, are you sitting around with a lot of unredeemed frequent flyer miles? Well, you're not alone. So here's a scary thought. Are your miles taxable by the IRS as income? A recent tax court case got my attention, and Gary Leff, founder of YouFromTheWing.com, has the answer. And by the way, how much are those miles really worth, not to you, but to the airline? The answer will definitely surprise you. And finally, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I crossed the pond telephonically to get the real story of the patron saint of Ireland with hotelier Francis Brennan and Dr. Tim Campbell, director of the St. Patrick's Center. No St. Patrick's Day parade this year, but the tradition lives on in many other ways. First up from the Caribbean, my conversation with Captain Kate McHugh. My next guest has a sort of a serious distinction in uh, in my history. When we did a story on her for my for my PBS show on the Travel Detective, it got the most number of responses we ever got, the most number of YouTube views. I mean, it's in the hundreds of thousands, uh, and for good reason. She's uh, she's an amazing woman. Uh, the first captain. Of a mega cruise ship dating back to 2015, so six years ago, she's now the captain of the Celebrity Edge, and we find her right now as she's moving from a small island in the Caribbean to Port Everglades, Florida, on the Edge. Captain Kate McHugh, hello, Captain.
4: Hi, Peter. So nice to talk to you again.
0: Yeah, I mean, the last time we talked, uh, you were about to take about to, to take on a whole new group of officers, making making your ship the only ship that I know of with an all-female complement of officers.
4: It was the barrier-breaking, history-making, or I should say herstory-making cruise because we woe-manned the entire ship with female <laughs> leadership in all of the positions, including an all-woman bridge team. So we made history on International Women's Day March 8th of 2020, and that was our last revenue cruise with guests on board. So it's been—it was, it was a way to go out with a bang to be honest.
0: And here we are a year later. So it begs the question, if that was your last revenue cruise, what have you been doing for the last year?
4: That That's an excellent question. You know, uh, on March 13th, we had the voluntary pause in cruising. And on March 15th was the last day that we had the guests. We said goodbye to our guests and we expected to see them within two weeks to maybe a month um, later. And so when we said goodbye to them, it wasn't, you know, a final farewell. We, we just thought, okay, it's going to be a couple of weeks. And we went into it pretty excited because we were given such a unique opportunity to be able to uh, let our crew experience the ship like our guests did. So the first thing we did is we put all of our crew, 1,000, at the time it was 1,320, we had some sign off, so we stayed with 1,075 crew members and we put them in all of our balcony guest staterooms. And I don't mean just the regular balcony guest staterooms. We had the top suites, we had the penthouse, we had the royal suite, even the iconic suite, which is the largest, most luxurious suite that we have in our fleet. We um, used this as an incentive for crew members who had done amazing things and, and kind of to pay it forward to them you know they got to eat in the restaurants and we put on some shows for them and um they really got to experience the ship like our guests do which was awesome in the beginning
0: oh in In the the beginning beginning. but that that then it continued right then then it wasn't two or three weeks it was longer
4: Oh, it it was much longer, but what happened is um, the world started to close down. So while we were having this amazing time on board the ship, the travel restrictions started to be imposed. Countries started closing their borders, and that's when our focus changed, and we became from, from the need to be resilient to actually happened, you know, we we started to be resilient in the fact that we needed to make sure that we looked after our crew in a very special way um, because we couldn't get them home from external reasons uh, off the ship that the company was working really diligently. And this wasn't just on cruise ships. There were 1.2 million seafarers that were stuck at sea. And um, because seafarers aren't considered essential, even though they bring 90% of the world's goods to the populations Um, so that the focus turned to getting our crew home and getting them home safely um, while this pause in cruising continued. And we weren't sure, of course, how long. We still aren't sure how long that's going to happen? Um, but you know, life doesn't stop. Life doesn't pause, and things happen. You know, from within the first two weeks, for example, one of my officers lost her father to COVID, couldn't get home, uh, and even if she could have gotten home, couldn't attend a funeral. And so we had a celebration of life for her dad on board. We celebrated the birth of our hotel director's first child because he just barely made it home, and I mean, within hours. And we lit up the side of the ship with the baby's name. We had two engagements between crew members. We had a wedding on board. And the really great thing about this wedding is it was two crew members whose wedding was postponed in Mauritius. They couldn't get home. But the bride's father was the executive chef on one of the ships that was nearby us in the anchorage. So we sent a tender down, picked up the father, brought him on board to surprise his daughter on her wedding day. And uh, he met her halfway down the aisle and walked her the remaining way. So we got to still celebrate life events, you know, birthdays, anniversaries. And we really have gotten to know our crew members on an intimate level, which is incredible. And it's been interesting. It's also been extremely fulfilling um, because this isn't something that we trained for. This isn't something that we knew was going to happen. And yet we've become extremely adaptable to whatever changes are coming. And it's really cool.
0: Now, what's your normal crew compliment?
4: Normally, we have 1,320 crew. And currently on board, we are with the minimum manning of 107. Um, And the reason that we have the minimum crew, because I get asked a lot of times, why don't you just dock the ship, and let everybody go home. And there's a couple of reasons. One, we need to make sure that the ship stays ship-shaped so when we get the green light to go back to cruising, we are ready. And um, so that's what we're doing on board. We're maintaining the ship, um, doing some things that we can't do while we're in service, taking advantage of that time. Also, you know, we're thankful to be having jobs right now. And if you rest, you rust. And that's not just the ship. It's also us. So, you know, keeping our skills up and, um, and being able to do this in a time when uh, everything's kind of shut down is a good opportunity.
0: And what lessons were learned during this unprecedented time? What lessons did you learn?
4: I think the, the number one lesson is how adaptable everyone is. Um, and this is one of the reasons that I honestly have so much faith in cruising returning because with every curveball that was thrown at us, whether it was, um, you know, the country shutting down or these new procedures, new protocol, anything from now you'll all wear masks to um, the sanitizing protocol that we have on board. Every single curveball was hit out of the park by the crew members. And we were just able to roll with every single punch and adapt. And I think, um, you know, being really open to not seeing things as black and white and working with what you've got and kind of taking it to the next level was was something really incredible. And when we shut down, the crew that remained on board, because that International Women's Day cruise was our last voyage with guests, the majority of the leadership that remained on board the ship was still that female leadership. And this particular vessel became one of the most empathetic compassionate places I have ever been in my life. And I think a lot of us took away from that um, the fact that we could be ourselves and we could interject creativity into a job that is really technical for the most part uh, and something that we hadn't had experience with from anything prior.
0: And then how did you keep yourself busy? Because normally you're greeting passengers and you're going to do different ports all the time. You were at Anchor. Uh, most of the time at this mm. point. And, you know, th- that's a different routine altogether.
4: Yes. And, you know, we, for for the crew, we came up with some really incredible things um, to keep them entertained. I remember we had a, a meeting uh, where I put all of the crew members in the theater and we, we told them about this this voluntary pause. And one of the crew members at the back, he stood up and he said, but how are we going to stay entertained and, and not get bored? And I told him what my grandfather said Told me when I was growing up, and he said only boring people get bored. And I reminded myself <laughs> of that when I was in a 15-day quarantine in a cabin, and you know you can't go anywhere. So I I have found things to do. I think each one of us has found something. We've found time to really hone a passion that we've had. For me, it was um, I really got into yoga and um, and using social media to keep people interested. In sailing,
0: we're on the satellite phone with Captain Kate McHugh on board her ship, the Celebrity Edge, sailing from uh, Coco Cay all the way back to uh, Port Everglades, Florida. Captain, it's a year later since you and I spoke. It's a year later since your last revenue cruise. Uh, The Centers for Disease Control basically had a no sail order in place, which they were they lifted conditionally at the end of October. But there are about 75 different things that every cruise line or every cruise ship has to do before they can cruise again, tell me the kinds of stuff you're doing now. You know, you mentioned getting the ship ship shape, but this is a different kind of definition of ship shape, isn't it?
4: That's right, and we have a healthy sail panel that was formed um, with experts shoreside and this is an evolving process. So every time you know the CDC has um, an advancement or or a new requirement, they are working that into our healthy sale. Our healthy sale panel is working that into um, the the healthy sale plan. And right now, where we are is in we're waiting for phase two, which is approval to have these mock cruises. And I have to say. When the idea of the mock cruises was introduced to the public, you know, 250,000 people almost instantly signed up to volunteer to go on these cruises. So when we have that green light, we will start manning our ships with the appropriate crew members um, because that's going to be an incredible repatriation effort to the ships um, because our crew members come, for example, from the Celebrity Edge, on from 75 different countries. So, you know, clearing people from from all of these countries and also once they get to whichever ship it is, um, there's quarantine currently involved, there's PCR testing for COVID involved. Um, so there's there's quite a bit. But this healthy sale panel panel is um, they're adapting to what we're finding in, as new changes come from the CDC.
0: And what are you doing for the, for the physical plan? Are you changing ventilation, floor plans? Are you changing dining hours or entertainment
4: venues? You know, for the dining and for the entertainment, we do expect some changes. What those changes are exactly, we don't have at this time. Um, right now, we can assume that it's going to be a lower capacity of guests uh, that are introduced to the ship once we have the green light to start sailing again. And obviously, that will affect, naturally, the times for dinner. And... Um, you know, the buffet, that that thing. Um, but for, for the exact plans with entertainment and food, we don't have that right now. For the physical aspects of the ship, we're doing things that uh, we would normally do in service, like engine overhauls. A ship is like... The golden gate bridge you start at one end painting it and by the time you get to the stern it's time to start over at the bow again so that constant maintenance is going on um because we only have 107 crew members on board most of our state rooms are closed up but we do go in every week and uh, flush the water pipes to make sure there's no Legionella building up and that uh, the water is still flowing through the pipes. So those kind of things that we wouldn't naturally do in service because we would have so many people on board that would help us with that um, in, in normal operation.
0: Right. And then, of course, ventilation systems, too.
4: And the ventilation systems, what we have done is is uh, revitalize our medical facility. So there is no more waiting room. There's the plexiglass. Um, the hours of operation in our medical facility will reflect uh, differently. And also when um, when they have people on call, it will be more of a, um, you know, schedule an appointment rather than just showing up down in the medical facility to take care of those issues. We also have um, a room set up, you know, to, to – uh, that's kind of our, our – covid prevention room i would say so those kind of things have been adapted on the celebrity apex and the edge and will be rolled out on all of our ships by the time we get that green light
0: now all the cruise lines that i've known uh, have continued to slide back their resumption of of sailing dates only because i'm sure they're just waiting for the cdc to give them the green light to do those mock cruises uh once you get that green light how soon do you think you can turn things around and do those cruises
4: um, well, you know, it's going to take a, a while to get our crew members back. Um, a time frame, an exact time frame, I couldn't say, but um, the first thing we'll be getting our crew members back. We're going to do some additional training once they come on board. We have quite a bit of our training has gone into um, online training, obviously, to avoid, you know, having mass groups in uh, in certain rooms so you know, return to service training, how we deal with certain situations they're going to need to go through. In addition to familiarizing themselves with the ship again, because for some people it will be at least a year since they've been on on board the ship. But um, we're honestly just really looking forward to seeing those crew members. We have about eighty thousand crew members within our Royal Brands, and uh, and of course half of them that are normally on the ship. So. With 107 on board now, we're really looking forward to the time when, you know, we're ramping up to over 1,000.
0: You know, a number of cruises have actually started in Europe with new protocols and specific Mm -hmm. disembarkation and boarding procedures. And they've they've relatively succeeded uh, working with the ports. I'm assuming that you're looking at that as a model for how you're going to resume as well, based on onboard testing, uh, mask-wearing procedures, and, of course, social distancing. When we come back, I want to talk to you about that and then talk to you about, you know, the bubble that you're going to have to be in for at least a little bit to get people's confidence level back to get back on a a cruise ship. Not for me, by the way, but for a lot of other people. Captain, there have been 350,000 passengers in Europe now that have actually taken a cruise in the last couple of months. Uh, Most of that incident, uh, they've kept it regional. Uh, They've also had a very strong approach to their shore excursion model, where it's uh, heavily escorted and vetted, uh, there's no like freelancing off the ship and walking around the port by yourself. But they've been able to uh, to do so successfully. Are you envisioning uh, that kind of a of a comeback with you in terms of what your procedures are going to be?
4: Absolutely. And what we're using right now is the Quantum of the Seas because that's one of our brands. That's Royal Caribbean's ship that's sailing in Singapore. Um, they have proven not only, you know, that the operation is going well, but when they had a false positive a few months ago, the way that the ship responded, um, they actually got kudos from the government in Singapore because of the way that they were able to um, to follow up and to make sure that everyone was safe on board. That was a huge thing for us. And to the point where they are now looking at increasing their capacity because of how successful they've been able to operate. So that's kind of the model that we're looking at right now. Um, part of the return to sail plan, of course, with the green light from the CDC saying that we can do these mock cruises, also includes you know, vetting the ports and making sure that they are ready for when we go back, and that's also utilizing some of our private islands. For example, where our ship is now, we're about 15 nautical miles off of Coco Cay, which is Royal Caribbean's private island. During this time that we've been out of service, they've actually allowed the crew members uh, and the ships to go in and experience that that port. Um, and being able to do that as a crew member in this time has also given me that, that uh, confidence that when we go back into sailing, you know, this is a very controlled environment in Coco Cay, but so are the ships and it's unique because where else in the world can you control who comes, how they come, what happens if something does occur on board the ship. And it, you know, it's, it is like living in a bubble. And during this time, the crew member message was always the same. We are in the safest, healthiest place on Earth. And if anything happens, you know what? Everybody should be on a cruise ship, to be honest. Uh, We did get bad press in the beginning, but I was on the other end raising my hand and saying, please talk to me because that's not the experience that we were having on our ships. Um, We were having a a safe and healthy place, but we were also really enjoying our time, um, where what was being projected via the news outlets was a very different story.
0: Exactly. Uh, Now, the other thing is it's happening, your parent company is dedicating one of their ships to cruise out of Israel, because by the end of this month, I think Israel will be the first country in the world in which just about everybody in the country will have been vaccinated. So sailing in in a bubble in which every passenger on the ship has already been vaccinated has got to be a plus.
4: Oh, absolutely. And to send... The newest ship, um, you know, the Odyssey of the Seas will do her inaugural in Haifa, sailing out of Haifa, with um, with their Israeli guests, and that's that's huge. But kudos to them because of the advancements that they've made with their vaccinations and the progress that they've made. And you know, people ask, "Will I take a vaccination?" Absolutely. Um, Will I wear a mask if that's what I need to do? And that's the feeling that our crew members have as well. Whatever it takes to get our guests back on board um, so that they can enjoy this is what we're going to do.
0: And that brings up my next question. You know, one cruise line has already said, actually, two of them have already said they're making uh, vaccinations mandatory for their officers and their crew. And that would lead me to believe that making vaccinations mandatory for passengers would be the next step. Uh, is that under consideration with you guys?
4: Absolutely. And I think, you know, whatever's going to keep us safe is what they're looking at. So, you know, we'll we'll see how the numbers evolve and, and progress goes with this. But uh, I think at this moment, that's what we're looking for.
0: I got you. Now, the last question I have to ask you, how's your cat?
4: <laughs> she's amazing. You know, she's when she can stay on the ship, she's the happiest she can be because it's floor to ceiling windows, it's sunshine every day in the Caribbean. So she's been um she's been amazing to have on board and I'm really thankful that the company lets me travel with Bug. But um yeah, she's living the dream. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and have you used the mermaid suit lately?
4: Do you know? I got two when we went out in, in Coco Cay. So that was, uh, that was a must. My, my tail had not been in the water for almost a year, and that's too long to be dried up for a mermaid. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> Took a Next date. time you see the Celebrity Edge and you see a mermaid swimming in the water, there's a reasonably good chance it's Captain Kate McHugh. My thanks to Captain Kate. <laughs> Next up, let's admit it, we're all frequent flyer junkies, even during the pandemic, but the dynamics of the mileage programs have changed, and the numbers will astound you. To make sense of it all, I asked Gary Leff, founder of viewfromthewing.com, to help us out. Uh, My next guest, I read him every day, has an incredible website called viewfromthewing.com, and uh, I'm always learning something new from him, sometimes some interesting stuff, sometimes some scary stuff, sometimes some funny stuff, sometimes some absurd stuff, which brings us up to a whole other issue, uh, and his name, of course, is Gary Leff. How are you, sir?
3: Oh, well, I'm apparently one of the, some of the absurd stuff, so uh, I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm doing well.
0: Well, let's start with this idea. Uh, if you go by certain recent figures, there are about 23 trillion unredeemed miles out there. Uh, that people are sitting around holding on to and may never use, but the point is they're there and i've often wondered over the last twenty five or thirty years you know you know do the airlines regret starting those programs back in nineteen eighty one and the answer is no, they don't uh at one point, they were just de- described as probably the most effective loyalty marketing campaign of the uh of the twentieth century. But they've morphed, haven't they, Gary? They've they've morphed into a profit-making opportunity for the airlines, and in many cases, making more money for the airlines than the airlines make as airlines.
3: Well, that's right. In fact, uh, so it used to be the case that you would earn miles for flying, and you would spend your miles on flying, and it was about getting you to choose uh, one airline over another. But what happened is that the programs are so powerful; people care desperately uh, about travel. And they want to accumulate those miles throughout their life. And so the airlines have been able to sell those miles to uh, partners who use them to promote their own products. And the biggest, of course, are the banks that issue airline credit cards, which are a majority of the miles that are being earned. And these are incredibly lucrative products, right? I mean, this is, you know, Willie Sutton, Rob Banks, because that's where the money is. Uh, And uh, we now know how much these programs are worth because the airlines have been able to raise incredible sums of money based on the future cash flow of the programs. In almost every business in the world, marketing is an expense line. For the airlines, marketing is a profit center. And the big news uh, most recently is that American Airlines set a record raising, uh, you know, put, putting out a, a, a private market you know, fundraising of billion dollars against the advantage program now it's been appraised at 18 to 30 billion so it may not be uh, even close to tapping out here but that's because they've also now had to reveal a whole bunch of financials about the program showing that in fact uh, their pro forma uh, net cash off the program uh, is greater than uh, the net profit for the airline for a year Suggesting that American really wasn't making any money flying planes, right? They are a credit card marketing company uh, that uh, flies around, and of course, without flying, we wouldn't, you know, want the the card and, and earn the miles. But that's really where the, the the cash is is in miles, and and they're not alone because we've already seen you know nine billion dollars raised by Delta and over six billion by United uh, in, uh, in in debt against the programs.
0: You know, it's interesting, because the first hint I got that they may be making tons of money on their frequent flyer programs was during the Delta Airlines bankruptcy a couple of years ago, when their largest debtor and possessor financer was American Express, uh, because American Express had co-branded their credit card with the Delta Sky Miles program, and it obviously was in Delta's best interest—I mean, excuse me, it was in American Express's best interest to get Delta back in the air— so that people would use their credit cards to earn miles to fly the airline, uh, or maybe just earn miles that may never get redeemed. Because the real key for me in understanding these programs, more than or just in addition to what you just said, Gary, is the redemption levels. If the redemption levels are only between eight and ten percent, I mean, when you think about it, mafia loan sharks don't get that kind of return, <laughs> uh,
3: right? I mean, America. American Advantage says that their net that their margin is over fifty percent on miles, and, dep- and there's a lot of arcane accounting going on there. It may actually be um, higher than that. Dur- you know, during the Great Recession, the airlines pre-sold miles to banks, raising you know a billion dollars or more in advance because the banks you know gave them the money up front, but that meant they had to sell the miles for less to get that kind of commitment. This time, only Southwest has done that said, gosh, a billion dollars. That's nothing, nothing. You know, we can, you know, we can raise debt on the future cash flow of these programs for you know six to ten times that much. Uh, of course, the uh, you know debt holders are in first pos- uh, position. If the programs can't you know pay back the debt, they can't even have the cash to uh, redeem our miles. But the bet here is that these programs are really, really rock solid, and so that's why investors are willing to put their money up on the bet that uh, they'll get their money back and a return because, you know, we are so in love with our miles.
0: Oh, we are definitely in love with our miles. here's my next question though. What is one mile worth?
3: Everyone's mile is different and there's no mile that has the same value. You know, look, I, I do put a value on each of the different currencies. I, I think about an American mile being worth about uh, you know, 1.3 or 1.4 cents. I, I think a delta mile is worth about a penny. Um, you know, But uh, it is not the case that we simply say, like, you know, 100 years ago, oh, a mile is worth two cents. Uh, I, I don't think anybody's mile is worth two cents. Uh, but it, the, the important thing to understand is that you know, miles are not the same. They're not interchangeable. And each program, you know, really, you want to make sure you understand what you want to do with the miles what you want to get out of them at the end uh, in order to know uh, which one is most likely to be able to fulfill your reward goals.
0: I have to tell you, I'm actually quite jealous of the mileage program because I wish I would have thought of it myself because when you think about it, you start with a mileage program and you sell miles to credit cards that are affiliated with your airline program. So Citibank for American and Chase for United and American Express for Delta. And you're selling miles knowing full well that the redemption levels are going to be low. So it's sort of like this no-brainer. You got your profit already built in uh, before any one of your planes ever takes off. And even if your planes do take off, that doesn't necessarily mean that frequent flyers are on board, right?
3: Well, look, every airline is also different in the percentage of frequent flyers on board. Uh, over the last few years we've seen about you know six percent of a plane uh, with american uh, in, uh, made up of frequent flyers and about 13 14 percent of a southwest plane uh, made up of frequent flyers and you know, sure look breakage is a big deal that's part of why airlines have had uh, in the past expiring miles fewer uh, have miles expire now than used to but even so they know that not all the miles are going to get uh, get redeemed when they don't expire uh, it's a great a situation to be able to issue your own currency and then decide that the currency has a limited shelf life.
0: Oh right, because they're not only issuing the currency, they're they're making the rules, right? They can change the rules at any time. They can uh, devalue the, the 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 mileage or the or the eligibility levels at any time. So, what I always like to say is, I have a difficult time trusting the airlines as airlines. Why would I trust them as banks? So. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's right. And in fact, they tell when they're selling uh, these debt instruments, um, this, the fact that they can devalue is sold as a feature uh, rather than a bug. They can preserve their margin because they set the rate at which consumers can use the point.
0: Right. So the lesson to be learned there is if you're listening to me and Gary right now and you're sitting on a lot of miles, especially now when there's so much ex- excess capacity out there in the, in the industry, think even 330 days out. Get out there and pick trips you've always wanted to go on or even get wilder. Pick destinations you never wanted to go. Now's your chance. I mean, the point is uh, it's a buyer's market if you're sitting on miles.
3: The way to think about this, I think, is you always want to earn and redeem miles in the same period to the extent possible, right? So that you use your points under the same rules and the same prices under which you earned them, then you're not hurt by devaluations when they inevitably come. And right Right. now, it certainly is a great time to use your miles because availability is good and because you have a lot of flexibility when you do it.
0: Right, and you could even redeem your miles to quiet your dog. But that's okay, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) But we've been talking to Gary Leff, the the author of viewfromthewing.com. So let me set the stage for you on this. Frequent flyer programs were started back in 1981. And ever since they were started, a lot of overzealous IRS auditors were going after people, making the claim that when you earned a frequent flyer mile or a point at a hotel, you were basically getting income that you weren't reporting, and therefore it was taxable. Now, over the last... 20-odd years or even longer, uh, every tax court that I could think of rejected that claim. The judges would never let it be taxable. In fact, they claimed it was a non-taxable rebate. That's what your frequent flyer miles were. I have a guess about why all the tax court judges threw them out. I'm completely convinced that every tax court judge is already a member of at least one frequent flyer program. But that's another story. Now comes the story that Gary just reported on recently, which definitely got not only my attention, but a lot of attention. And that is a tax court ruling of a different kind when it comes to a cash back card, but it could have easily been applied to a mileage card. And here's the story. And Gary, correct me if I'm wrong, because I really read this one. This is a crazy story. A very smart couple got one of those cash back cards that had no preset spending limit. I believe it was American Express. And they got something like 5% back. So what did they do with 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 their card? They went out and bought money orders and gift cards, which they then used to pay their bill every month but they were out buying like a million dollars worth of gift cards and money orders so that every month they were getting like $50,000. There's your 5%. Well, they had so much success doing that, they kept on upping the ante. The next year, it was like 2 million, then 3 million, then 4 million. Then in one year, they did over $5 million in gift card and money order purchases. Again, they were just recycling. All those money orders and gift cards went back to paying the bill. And yet, what's 5% of 5 million? They were making $250,000 a year on cash back for buying absolutely nothing. So here comes the IRS claiming this is taxable income because the um, the IRS embraced the concept of uh, dollar equivalency. And they went to court and guess who, guess who won? The IRS. So what does this mean, Gary, to anybody else holding frequent flyer miles or even getting cash back on their uh, legitimate purchases?
3: For the most part, nobody listening is going to ever see an IRS audit because of their rewards credit card. The IRS has always said that, you know, if you buy something, the cash back or the miles are a rebate. It's giving you part of your own money back. That's not taxable. The trick here is that the IRS said, look, uh, you know, they're not getting their own money back because they're not really spending their money for any you know legitimate service of any kind. You know, if you fly a plane, and you buy a ticket, um, you're getting miles, it's a rebate of your money. If you fly on a business trip, you're actually getting a rebate on your employer's money, and you think, well, gosh, that ought to be income too, right? Well, the IRS said, no, we're not going to tax that because... It'd be way too complicated and besides the political backlash would be incredible. <laughs> they don't want to hear from every you know, every senator and everyone in the country with a frequent flyer account. We're not gonna tra- tax business travel. But in this case they said, look, you know, th- th- the volume of what this person was doing was so large that it came to the IRS's attention and they stood there and they said, Look, you're not actually spending any money. Your money isn't uh, is not uh, at risk here. Uh, they were reloading prepaid debit cards to buy the gift cards. They were um, buying gift cards, and the tax court actually said that the um, uh, that the cash back they earned off of buying gift cards uh, that were then recycled into cash was not taxable because the gift cards were a legitimate service that was being purchased. It was the loading of. Um, debit cards—just putting money onto a card that was still money. Uh, there were there was no service purchase, so there couldn't be a rebate. So the money earned was taxable.
0: And okay, so wait, I, wait, wait. Okay, keep keep going.
3: Yeah. So the particular techniques that the person was using to earn miles are, for the most part, not even really available anymore. So someone couldn't really go out and uh and and replicate what this guy did. To earn you know, three hundred thousand dollars in uh, rebates and attract the ire of the IRS,
0: although it did get my attention, but I got one more for you. <laughs> what happens if I take fifty thousand miles and I cash them in for a ticket that I then give to you as a present? Is that income?
3: No, I mean if you gave me uh, if you gave me a present if you if you bought me dinner uh, and I'm going to take you up on that sometime, right? Uh, that's not taxable to me either the irs has all kinds of gift exclusions at a certain level gifts become taxable but you and i aren't going to get anywhere close to that
0: <laughs> speak for yourself <laughs> <laughs> gary Leff. okay you've cleared it up for me but uh, i'm still waiting for another zealous irs auditor to try to test that again in court because they do it every year they do it every year so another reason for you to uh, redeem your miles my thanks to gary four-leaf clovers, green beer, the St. Patrick's Day Parade, what's myth, and what's real about St. Patrick. Irish hotelier Francis Brennan is one of my go-to sources. Of course, we know it's coming, St. Patrick's Day on the 17th. And of course, the only person I need to talk to about that, we have to go across the pond to Kenmare in County Kerry, our good friend Francis Brennan. Hello, sir. How are you, Peter? Good to hear you. Are you all building up for the excitement? Yes, uh, well, I, I, I don't know how exciting it's going to be this year because not too many people are going to be crowding into bars, but...
5: Yes, uh, it, it, your pre- the parade is constant in New York, is it?
0: Yeah, it is. But, I mean, I remember, you know, growing up here in New York, watching everybody eating corned beef and cabbage and, and, and green beer and wearing green clothes and, uh, I mean, if you'll excuse the expression, uh, drunk and disorderly, too. But other than that, let's go, let's go back to the history, though, of of Saint Patrick and and why we even have a Saint Patrick's Day?
5: Yeah, well, Saint Patrick uh, was was a, a Welshman, they believe, all right. Back in the in four thirty eight, I think it was, and he was brought to Ireland as a slave. Funny enough, and he did herding sheep uh, sheep on a hillside on behalf of uh, some landlord. He escaped and went home, and then he got a calling from God, and he came back then as a Christian, and took a, took took about converting all of the Irish. And we get our Christian base from about the fourth century from St. Patrick. And uh, it it, uh, runs from the north to the south of Ireland. It's like it was all over. He traveled extensively in the country, explaining to people about the shamrock. It's interesting about the shamrock. The shamrock is a tree. Now, in America, you have mostly clover. You don't really have shamrock at all. Shamrock has three leaves, whereas clover has four. OK, and uh, over the years, because there wasn't that much shamrock in America, I think he, the American nation uh, made the, the clover have four leaves here. But uh, it, it said that um, uh, St. Patrick, when he was talking to the people who would have been uneducated at that time, that he took the shamrock from the ground, held it up and said, look, this, the shamrock is like the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost, which is the Trinity of the Catholic Religion, so that seems to be where the shamrock got its start.
0: But let me ask you this, though, about about the shamrock and the clover, because I grew up, you know, looking for the lucky four-leaf clover, right?
5: Oh yeah, but that's that's all American, Peter. That's what it's all about. You should have been looking looking for the lucky shamrock, which you never probably would have found. And it's not that easy to find here in Ireland. There are commercial people that grow it now here, like as a shamrock. Um, but um, like, it, the best place to get it is along the side of the road and all the rest. I'm, when you we were kids, like this is back now, 40, oh no, 60 years ago now. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, time flies along. When we were kids, you'd be out the week before looking for the shamrock and if you saw it in the ditch or, you know, on on somebody's garden or the hedge or whatever, you'd know it was there and you'd be watching it that nobody else would take it. Because on Patrick's Day, first of all, when I was a child, Patrick's Day was a, a, a bank holiday, what we call which is like your Thanksgiving. Everything closes, completely everything. And it was a holy day, so you went to Mass. So you got up in the morning and you you had your big piece of shamrock. Now, the bigger piece of shamrock you had, the better you were when you were seven or eight or ten years of age, if you can imagine. And you then badges came in, okay, like uh, the, the tricolor, uh, the, uh, you got uh, like a badge that just stuck on. And the bigger your badge, the better. Like I saw kids, in. we only had ordinary ones because we were ordinary people, but you would see children in the school, in, in the church, and they'd have one like the dog show, you know, the big one, the big rosette. Yeah, yeah. 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 And the bigger like he'd be marked that he'd he'd win the like look around the church award because we, we'd only have a small little one. and But we had a big bit of shamrock, so we kind of maybe we'd even out. But it was all about the, the bit of shamrock and the badge at that stage and then mass. And then you came home and let me tell you, nothing happened <laughs> it, 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 in those days. There was no parade originally. Okay. No, nothing else. You had a Sunday dinner, what we would call like the dinner you'd have for Thanksgiving in America, like what would be with roast or lamb rather than turkey at that time of the year. And that was it. And then you might watch television in the afternoon or whatever. But and the pubs, when you hear this, you love this. No pub opened in Ireland ever until the early 70s on Patrick's Day. Really? It was a completely dry day. So the carry on with drink and all of that carry on that is uh, uh, um, you see in America because I've been there for like 40 um, Patrick's Days. I'm sure I've been in America for 40 Patrick's Days over the years. Um, and it's all about drink out there. So it's, it, it, that's not the way it was here. And the first parade in North America for Patrick's Day, which the parade came back from America to Ireland, if you know what I mean. It wasn't here. Okay. Yeah, the, in and fact, the first St.
0: Patrick's Day parade was actually in America.
5: Yeah, in Boston. And it was. Irish members of a British battalion who marched on Patrick's Day to to make some statement for themselves from their base camp in Boston to a local tavern where drink became part of life. <laughs> so <laughs> an awful lot of what goes on in, in North America for Patrick's Day is complete and utter commercial makeup.
0: The base was started here, not in Ireland. I love it. Yeah,
5: exactly. It was started, the first parade known was was in Boston in a, in an English battalion with Irish members marched.
0: Okay, now I gotta ask another question because for so many of of our younger friends, their idea of a leprechaun was on the on the cover of Lucky Charm Cereal. <laughs> so so where did the leprechaun start?
5: The leprechauns. Well the leprechauns were were folklore from Ireland. Um, I watched a programme last night on television, all right, from Peg Sayers. She was an elderly lady, very learned, uh, had no education, but was very learned and dictated a book, which we all did in school, Peg Sayers. And the book, uh, she would have lived on the Blasket Islands off the coast of Kerry here. okay, now. The, the the leprechauns were always the older people absolutely believed in in fairies okay now we used to call them fairies not leprechauns right again the leprechaun got dressed up in america and looks lovely okay but he doesn't like that here at home the fairies would do things and would they would the country people would respect fairies and there was things called fairy forts in fields where a ring of trees would grow you know, like for no reason, like a ring of trees, or maybe 200 feet between them, in a circle. Now, no god-fearing Irish farmer would touch that. He wouldn't knock them down, or he wouldn't build in it, because it would bring bad luck. But the but the fairies, which were little people in Ireland, ended up going back to America and got dressed up and they became leprechauns. But I must tell you a good story. There was a young lad that worked us here in the bar. He was only 18. He came from Sweden for a summer. And he was, his English was okay for good, but not, not great. Okay. So he was in the bar one night. He was serving drink two Americans, actually, at the bar counter. And they said they had been down the garden and that they got eaten alive by the midgets, which are no CMs to you, but we call them midgets, M-I-D-G-E-T-S. Right. right. But he thought that there was the bottom of our garden, there was all these little small people, <laughs> and that they got, he was afraid to go down the garden. He was 18 years of age, but he was afraid because he came from Sweden, where they had trolls. You know those little uh, those little little people, and it's all built into folklore up there. So he thought they just were at the bottom of our garden, and he wasn't going near them. Whereas there were baby mosquitoes eating the Americans alive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> were they were they were they green mosquitoes? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs> they could be for Patrick's Day. They might get dressed stuff for Patrick's Day, all right. But well, well, just a funny, a funny story.
0: Well, speaking of green, uh, there's so many uh, societies and countries right now where they're, where they're lighting up all the all the buildings in green, right? Oh
5: yeah, all all, all all worldwide now. Like it started out with the big things like the wheel in London and the uh, Opera House in Sydney. You know, the but now like this year now they're in the Masai Mara in. In Central uh, Africa, uh, Kenya, the P- they're lighting up the main entrance to there. They did Niagara Falls, I believe, some years past as well. Right, and they're doing. Um, where else they're doing? They're doing a post box in the way on the north, just like a mile from the North Pole. They're greening it tonight as well. So it's all. It's well, actually, you know what? It's that's. It's a. It's, it's very simple now It's very co- very cost. approved. Uh, approved because it's yeah. only two light bulbs, but it does. It does. The Irish people that live in those places get great, you know, emphasis out of it that it's our day being recognised, you know. And then the Empire State Building, I'm sure, it to be green as well. I don't know, but it, it has always done that. I think, to be honest, yes. with the way
0: And they're doing it. And they're doing it again
5: this year. And how are you going to celebrate at your hotel? I wish we're not open, Peter. We're in lockdown here in Ireland at the moment. I know. We, we can only go five kilometres from our front door to wherever we're going and come back.
0: So, so you're celebrating in spirit, and then when nobody's looking, you're going to have a drink, aren't you?
5: Well, there could be a bit of that, all right?
0: <laughs> Although,
5: just to tell you, me as a person never touched alcohol in my life. I took a pledge in my school when I was 12 years of age, re- re- renewed it at 16, renewed it at 21, and never, ever broke it, and enjoyed more parties than anybody in the world.
0: No, no, you, no actually, you remembered more parties. <laughs> yes, yes.
5: And I was always, they loved me in New York because I'd always bring them home.
0: You were the designated driver, of course. Hey, one last one last thought, Francis. We're talking to Francis Brennan, who are who's our all-thing Irish guy, and that is, you know, I heard the other day that in the U.K. the minister says they're going to reopen the borders around May 17th. Hopefully that means Ireland will not be far behind. And what that means, of course, we're just going to have to defer and delay our real celebration of St. Patrick's Day until I can get over and see you sometime
5: in late May. Well, you'll always be welcome, as will all your compatriots from North America.
0: My thanks to Francis. And in case you hadn't realized it yet, the Irish take St. Patrick seriously. How seriously? Just ask Dr. Tim Campbell, the director of the St. Patrick's Center in Downpatrick. For all things St. Patrick's, I have to go across the pond to Ireland, to Downpatrick, to Dr. Tim Campbell, who happens to be the director of the St. Patrick's Center. That's right, the St. Patrick Center. Doctor, thank you for joining us.
6: Hi, Peter. It's a real pleasure to be here on the E just before we get into St. Patrick's Week.
0: Well, tell me and tell our audience, if you can, where exactly is Downpatrick Patrick and where you are?
6: So the St. Patrick Centre is the only permanent exhibition in the world about St. Patrick. We're just celebrating our 20th anniversary. And we are located two hours north of Dublin and 30 minutes south of Belfast in beautiful County Down where the mountains of Ward sweep down to the sea.
0: <laughs> and where might Sir Patrick, Sir, uh, St. Patrick be right now?
6: St. Patrick is with us. St. Um, Patrick began his mission to Ireland in 432 AD, and when he died, he died at a little church right close to where we are called Saul, and he was buried here. Uh, so he is in the medieval cathedral of the medieval uh, cathedral beside us, right beside us here in Don Patrick. How many
0: people really understand the significance of St. Patrick's Day? Because from an American perspective, we think parades, everything colored green, people drinking, uh having a party, that's not really what you guys were doing. Well,
6: really, we're, we're telling the story of St. Patrick, and, and Patrick's a really interesting figure, because whenever we think of St. Patrick, if you ever see a picture of him, he's always dressed in green, he's wearing a bishop's hat, he's holding a shamrock, and he's standing on a snake. And actually, Peter, none of those things make sense at all. So these are, are, are things that have been added on to him. The national color of Ireland is actually blue, not green, um, and the first St. Patrick's Day parade was in Boston in 1737. So that we could have made all that razzmatazz up and parades. And, and the idea of green, actually, is an ancient thing in Ireland, but it really was uh, adopted in America. And then we reinvented we it uh, whenever we, we brought St. Patrick's parade back here. Because for us, St. Patrick's Day was a day of prayer, reflection, and abstinence. Um, so <laughs> we didn't have as much fun as you. <laughs> and so we've got that back. The, the snakes, he's supposed to banish snakes from Ireland. And we haven't had snakes here in the last 10,000 years. So we think he's banishing the pagan gods, which are represented of the serpentine patterns. Uh, and as for Shamrock, well, you see him holding Shamrock, but he doesn't mention it. We know three was a lucky number for the Celts. They at vegetation. So he may well have used it to describe, um, you know, the new religion that he was bringing but he doesn't mention it himself, and of course he wouldn't have had a bishop's hat on. Those only come in medieval time. So, we, we, I think we have to undress St. Patrick, and then then we need to address who the real St. Patrick is. Who is this guy? Um, okay, so so the inter- open the
0: door and tell us.
6: Well, the interesting thing is that he tells us, you know, unlike any other of our early saints, other people wrote about them and said how fantastic they were, but like Patrick is unusual because we can actually get inside his head. He writes about himself. And, you know, we think of of St. Patrick's Day as a celebration, but we can also think of St. Patrick as a destination in Ireland uh, because there's all sorts of really interesting sites, particularly around the northern part of Ireland, that are associated with St. Patrick. And he tells us in his writings quite a lot about himself. He said he was born on the island of Britain. He was kidnapped whenever he was 16. He was brought to Ireland as a slave, and he became a slave for, for six years during which time he started to remember his father's faith, his father was a cleric, and then he escaped with some sailors, only to come back in 432 AD to bring Christianity to the island. So, you know, so many contemporary themes in his life. Slavery. You know, we think of slavery today. He was trafficked. We think of immigration today. Patrick was an immigrant. We think of women's rights. He was an advocate for women, in contrast to many of the early early Celtic saints. He was a rebel. He broke away from the church. He was inspirational in his faith. All these things are really contemporary, and many people, whenever they read the story of St. Patrick, which is what we relate here at the St. Patrick Centre, they start to become really excited about St. Patrick, not just as a historical figure or a religious figure, but simply his contemporary relevance today.
0: So the good news is you've gone beyond the 19th and 20th century American branding of him.
6: Yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. We love to celebrate, and we have adopted that ourselves. And that is what keeps, to a large extent, St. Patrick and his legacy alive today. So, you know, that's great. But, yeah, there there is more to it than that. Um, there is a, a figure that you can come to discover in this part of the world. Um, and and there also is, I think, this, the spirit of St. Patrick is one of forgiveness, reconciliation. What better role model, Peter, that for someone, the patron saint of Ireland, who came from Britain, particularly in Northern Ireland, which is where we are, where we have this cross-traditional, um, you know, influences. He represents all communities. So, I mean, Armagh, the ecclesiastical capital of Ireland, has, is the only city in the world that has two cathedrals named after one St. Saint, Saint Patrick, the Protestant Cathedral and the Roman Catholic Cathedral. So he continues to bring people together. He continues to be relevant.
0: How are you going to be celebrating St. Patrick's Day? since Ireland right now is essentially on lockdown.
6: Yeah, we are locked down. This is going to be a really weird, Peter. This is our second St. Patrick's Day that we haven't been able to celebrate St. Patrick in the way that we usually do. So over the last 12 months, we have really had an opportunity, though, to look at what we're selling and the products and how we join everything together. And we've actually come up with two new products. One, I have worked with a couple of ladies, former Adoration Sisters, um, one is a lady who was previously a BBC political correspondent. The other was a barrister. So they joke that they're here to rock the cradle of Christianity. And um, they're wonderful people. They've helped me to create St. Patrick's Way, the Camino of Ireland. So over lockdown, we have created this incredible passport that rather like this, the Camino of Santiago de Compostela, you can go around and you walk with them. And you can walk and there's a passport that get stamped at each one of a number of sacred locations uh, as you walk around the, the town of Downpatrick and you do it a, a full day, a half day. And we launched this last summer when we were able just for to get out locally and it was incredibly popular because people want to be outside, they want to be in small groups. My, my guides describe it as a, a staycation or a prayercation or, or a slowcation. You know, it, it's <laughs> taking the time to, to, to meet people, in small groups, get some gentle exercise. They go to Inch Abbey, the, the place where the, the legend of the snakes was written. They go to Saul Church, um, where Patrick created the first church in 432 AD and where he died on the 17th of March in that space, that sacred space. We go and visit, we walk to, to the tallest statue of St. Patrick in the world, It's our Christ the Redeemer, a little smaller, but, you know, it's the tallest statue of St. Patrick in the world. Even that, everything is a story here. Even that is a story. Whenever they were building this tallest statue of St. Patrick in the world, they couldn't agree what he should look like. Should he look like the the Roman Catholic Archbishop or should he look like the Protestant man or the Methodist man or the Presbyterian guy? And they they eventually agreed that he would be dressed in the, the, the robes of the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Armagh, but he would be carved with the face of the Protestant Bishop of Dublin, which is kind of the way that we roll here, you know, making sure that everybody's involved. <laughs> so you can visit all these wonderful sites, and that's, that's just in our local area, and that's a way to do it. We, we've just created a new Camino and canoe, so you can do a bit of canoeing as well. But beyond our immediate area, we have Armagh, the Cathedral City, which is the ecclesiastical capital of Ireland It's, it's famous for having St. Patrick monuments as well. And beyond that, of course, you can go to some of the the more famous sites like Cashel, which has an association with St. Patrick. We've got St. Patrick's um, down in the cathedral down in uh, in Dublin. Um, and then we have Loch Derg, which is St. Patrick's Purgatory for pilgrims. So there's lots of sites. We, we almost say that almost every field in Ireland has some association with St. Patrick, but most of the historical associations with him are here in Downpatrick, Patrick. And of course we have the Grave of St. Patrick. You can't, how can you come to Ireland and not visit St. Patrick. So (laughs) he's buried underneath this huge granite stone, and we say that uh, there's three saints buried there. It's a great value for money when you come. And (laughs) the medieval (laughs) medieval rhyme is in down one grave, three saints do fill, Patrick, Bridget, and Colin Kill.
0: Amazing. I okay, have one more question for you, and that's when people do get a chance to come and visit, when the lockdown ends, when the borders are reopened, when they do come, what's the one thing that surprises them the most about St. Patrick that they did not know?
6: I think that the one thing that they that they don't really, they haven't really understood, is that he does not come from Ireland. The most famous Irish one is not Irish. That really astounds a lot of people. So whenever they come when we're talking about someone who came from the island of Britain, they're amazed. <laughs> <laughs> But he's an amazing story and an amazing character and contradictory in so many ways. Even then, he was contradictory. He fell out for the church. He broke away. He's a rebel. So, you know, there's something that everybody can really relate to. And it's an interesting, fantastic, never-ending story. And as you know, it's a gift that keeps on giving. It happens every year. So let's find out about him.
0: I gotcha. And of course, part and parcel of the Irish culture is everybody is a storyteller. Even you. And um, and so as the story of exactly and as the story of Saint Patrick's continues, I'm looking forward to getting back over there when the borders reopen. I hope that'll be sooner rather than later. Hopefully this summer, and uh, it doesn't have to be Saint Patrick's Day as we now know to come see you and at least learn more about the patron saint of Ireland. My thanks to Dr. Campbell, to Francis Brennan, to Gary Leff, and to Captain Kate McHugh. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, just rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, and if you haven't figured it out by now, there's a lot of it, just log on to petergreenberg.com. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at
1: wondery.com survey. listen to blood is thicker the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting May 1st hi this
2: is Jill Schlesinger CBS News business
4: analyst certified financial planner and host of the money watch podcast this is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring it is a show that's all about you